Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. I'll be reading Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. And the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Father, I pray that you help me reveal what's here on the pages of this passage in the words and sentences and that you will not harden hearts but soften hearts to the glory of the name of the only Savior, Jesus. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus spit on, slugged, ridiculed, flogged where His flesh, His tendons are exposed on His back, and then mocked as the king of the Jews, and then with a crown that a king needs, with one inch long thorns pounded into his scalp and through his skin and through his nerve endings, his blood drips down his face, and then he was forced to pick up his execution wooden plank and carry it through the public streets of Jerusalem until he could not carry it any longer. And Simon of Cyrene 
was forced then to pick it up the rest of the way as they go out the gate to a small hill about 300 feet away from the wall of Jerusalem. And there they pinned Him with six inch long nails to the cross naked. And all that causes excruciating pain because of the wounds, but it is now that He's on the cross, the long process of slow suffocation begins as He is forced to push up with His legs and pull with His arms to open up His chest cavity in order to get air and to breathe and back down again and up again. It's about 9 a.m. in the morning now. And so for the next six hours, He will suffer and be mocked and laughed at and ridiculed by many while hanging there naked. And sometime during the morning, He said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive whom? It's a pretty big question. Some have argued that when He said forgive them, that by the them He must have meant only the Roman soldiers, the four that are crucifying Him, and there's twelve at least altogether for three executions. Forgive the Roman soldiers, not the Jews, because they are the ones who don't know what they're doing. For instance, one commentator writes, two things here require careful notice. First, the them in forgive them was for the Roman soldiers alone who in all truthfulness did not know what they were doing. And secondly, Jesus did not forgive the soldiers for their sins or sinful condition. He extended specific forgiveness for a specific sin here of crucifixion. End quote. In other words, they're saying that the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, and the crowds were not ignorant. So he's only referring to the non-Jews. Soldiers. Here. I don't think that's correct. I, I think Jesus primarily had in mind the Jews. But it wouldn't exclude the Roman soldiers because they're all implicated in putting Him on the cross. So the question is, how are we to understand Jesus' intimate prayer to the Father for forgiveness in this situation? Let me first just make clear that He cannot mean of all the hundreds of people, from crowds to people walking by all day, to the chief priest and many more of the leadership council, pardon their sin and their sinful nature and give them eternal forgiveness 
from all of their sin, no matter how they respond to the Gospel. You can't mean that because there is no such forgiveness anywhere else in the Bible. Forgiveness is not granted to those who do not repent and trust in God's provision. So, let me just... Here's what I think. In some sense, when he says this, it is a prayer that his executioners, implicating the Jews and the pagans and all, it is a prayer in some sense that at least some of them come to repentance and faith and thus get forgiven for this. Yeah, let, me, let me make one other note because some commentators bring this up and people in the past have tried to argue what Jesus is doing here is saying, please forgive the Jewish nation and don't bring this horrific judgment that's going to come and that He has prophesied on a number of occasions and He just prophesied on the road to the cross about A.D. 70 when Jerusalem will be absolutely destroyed. He, he clearly does not mean don't let the judgment come, forgive them, let it pass. Okay, so then what? I think he, I'm going to throw out two possibilities, and it's the second one where I fall, okay? But the first, as he says, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Is it, is it a prayer in which Jesus is showing as he hangs there? He has no sinful bitterness towards those who are doing this to him, and then in that sense, it's not a prayer where the eternal Son of God in his humanity is saying, Father, I'm asking you to do this, and the Father says, No. That it's not that because he's not really asking for forgiveness, he's showing how to love your enemies, and he's showing his, his good will that change their hearts and let them turn from such ways. Okay, that's, that, that's one option. But, but th- this is where I lean right here. And let me just flesh out, therefore, the prayer, the way that I see this forgiveness. Father, some of these people You have given to Me. Don't let this most grievous of all sins that they're doing right now Stand in the way of them coming to see the truth and repent and believe in Me and get eternal forgiveness. That's the way I understand it. Remember back in John 6, Jesus said this, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given Me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up 
on the last day. In other words then, I'm saying this prayer is specifically for some in the crowd and some of the leaders and some of the soldiers and some of the passerbyers all day long mocking that they will come to faith in this Jesus hanging there. And it will be illustrated next in the mocking thief who's hanging beside him just a few feet away. Within the last twelve hours, Jesus prayed this way at the Last Supper. Father, I am not praying for the world. But I'm praying for those whom You have given Me. Because they are Yours. So He's praying, Father, forgive those here who are My sheep because they don't know what they are doing. They are in the depths of darkness still. Spiritual ignorance. Forgive this. Cause them to subsequently see and believe. And so now Luke then paints the picture of darkness to light to eternal forgiveness in the deathbed experience of the thief on the cross. Now, what I want to do, I want to turn to Mark chapter 15 first for a moment. Because Mark and Matthew both tell us something about the, uh, that Luke doesn't tell us. In Mark 15, starting with verse 31, he writes, And so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then he says, those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. So, I I think we can paint the picture here of what's happened. The chief priests, Elders, crowds, passerbyers are laughing, mocking this preacher guy. Ends up on the cross. What a fraud. And that's going on for a while. And then, evidently, both of these criminals who are also being executed with him chimed in because they had to hitch themselves up to get some breath. The Christ, save yourself and us. And so, evidently, that happened. But as time went by, one of them kept on here and there mocking Jesus who hung beside him, and the other evidently fell silent. 
as he more and more observed Jesus' demeanor. He heard no curse words come out of Jesus' mouth or threats against those who were doing this to Him. He had heard Jesus stop and turn on the road to Golgotha and address those mourners, those women, don't weep for Me. Weep for yourself and the Jewish people and what's going to happen. He heard that. After they're hanging there, He heard Jesus say, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In other words, He began to be convicted. He saw His own guilt up against the innocence of Jesus of Nazareth, this itinerant, popular preacher slash Messiah. Maybe something miraculous was happening inside of this criminal. And the more he heard the other thief continue his ridicule, it bugged him. And so let's pick up in our text in Luke 23, verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! But the other rebuked Him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly Hang here. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. Faith has arisen in this guy, being evidenced by his heart of repentance. Now, we don't know for sure, but many postulate that maybe both of these guys, along with Barabbas, they were of the party of the zealots. And they're being executed, not for some little petty stuff, but for rebellion against Rome. And the zealots, they wanted to overthrow Rome. They're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a leader. And then maybe what's going on when they're first ridiculing Him, you're the Messiah? You're going to overthrow Rome? He's hanging on a Roman cross. Probably where the ridicule comes from. And one continues in his hard-heartedness for who knows how long. Six hours these guys will be there on the crosses. But the other one started to see. Ignorance was turning to sight. The ignorance, as Jesus prayed, forgive them and forgive Him, for He does not know what He's doing. And that ignorance on this cross of that dying man turned to true sight. 
He knew how bad his heart and his actions were. He knew and owned up to the fact he deserved what he was getting. Look at verse 41. And we indeed are being put to death justly because we are receiving the due appropriate reward for our deeds. But not Jesus. He owned His own sin and thus His need for mercy. And notice He did not appeal to His good works or His good intentions in life. He didn't justify His sins if they were sins of insurrection. But Jesus, I know people got killed, but this was in a right cause. He didn't do that. He had a great advantage over many in finding salvation. The fear of God arose. Look at verse 40. He says to the other criminal, Do you not fear God? He feared God. Meaning, he feared God's judgment of his sins. During this time of his hanging on that Roman cross, this man realized his own bankruptcy before God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so it was in that spirit, in that disposition, in every sinner from every age ought to hear it. In that disposition, this man turned to Jesus whom He had recently concluded, He is the one upon whom God will bestow the kingdom. An eternal kingdom. He is David's Son. Verse 42, see it? And He said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He did not say, remember my deeds. Or remember that I meant well in life. But He said only, remember me. He's asking for mercy. He was saying through those words, and Jesus knew it, the the light went on. It's become clear to me that you are Him. You are going to somehow, after this, come into your kingdom. I see that now. Will you remember me on that day? I want that. 
I really want that. I want you. And the suffering Savior no longer remained silent. And Jesus said to him, Truly, this is the only time in all of the Gospels where Jesus uses the word Amen when He's talking to one individual as opposed to a crowd. Amen or truly, I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. You gotta get, see, this guy's not asking that. He he, he's asking. There's a day. I don't know when this is. There's a future coming into your kingdom. He's a Jew. He knows the prophecies. On that day, on that future time, will you remember me? And Jesus goes way beyond His request here and assures Him of an immediate entry into paradise. That day, with Jesus. And He promised Him that apart from anything this guy did for Jesus. Or any promise He didn't say, Jesus... Maybe in this future kingdom, I'll clean up my life. I'll make you some promises and a deal if you let me in. He just said, remember me. And Jesus said, you got it. End of issue. Paradise. This word is only used three times in the New Testament. One commentator says concerning the word paradise, quote, the word translated paradise, which is the word paradesos, it bore the meaning of garden originally, and it came to represent the future bliss of God's people. It was understood as describing the intermediate resting place for the souls of the righteous dead prior to the great resurrection. I think, and I think that's right. Total and final salvation is not just to depart your body in death and be a bodiless soul. That's not what Jesus came to purchase in His totality. It is a bodily future resurrection that Jesus will bring about at His second coming, which is still not yet. But until then, this guy, or Peter, or the Apostle Paul, or all those believers this last seven days who have died, they don't have a physical body like they will one day, but they exist very consciously in paradise, in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus. See, the other time, one of the other times this word is used is the way Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 3-4, to where he writes, And I know 
that this man, he's referring to himself, was caught up into paradise. Whether I was in the body or out from the body, or away from the body, I don't have any idea. Only God knows that. But I heard things that are not proper or allowed for me to even utter. And the other place is when Jesus Himself says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus turns to this guy and He says, well, we're going to add a couple words, but this is what He means, isn't it? On this very day, you will be dead. And with me in paradise. And within hours of that, this man will have his legs broken by the guards so that he cannot push up anymore and thus he will succumb to suffocation and die. And then what happened to him? Where was he then? That very real man, where was he? He was with God. And He was released from all of that torturous pain. And He was released from the burden and judgment of all the sin of His life. And that has been true for every person who has come to genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ since. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8 when he writes, and yes, we believers, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. That means death. And at home with Jesus the Lord. What we see here in our text is that this is a deathbed conversion. And it shows clearly that salvation does not come as a result of your good deeds. When those little thoughts pop into the head, well, and don't these pop into the head of thousands of church going people. I've cleaned my life up pretty good. Therefore, I've made myself acceptable to the Lord. To the extent that those thoughts are believed is to the extent that person does not understand or know the Gospel of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace 
would no longer be grace. And don't ever think that you or anyone else is beyond grace. If you're caught up in sin, that if any other human being down here knew, you're convinced they would think you're a scumbag. You're not beyond the grace of Jesus. The only thing that puts us sinners beyond hope is to be like this other thief, criminal, and reject Jesus. That's it. This guy also died that day. And he did not go to paradise with Jesus awaiting the bodily resurrection of the saved. He went to a horrific holding cell until the day of His trial, which is coming. And the man in the middle will be the judge. But don't miss it. While any person in our families, in our friends, that we meet in a hospital bed, if they still have breath in them, it's not too late. Even if they've lived their 85 years as wretched human beings to even be in the presence of, it's not too late. This side of death. So, does this passage of Scripture really mean to say that there are some devout religious people, even there that day, particularly if they're in the fundamentalist camp of the Pharisees, and been working hard all their lives to be very religious and go by the rules and the morals. Does this text really mean to say that many of those will die and go to hell without faith in God's grace that comes only through Jesus Christ? And on the other hand, a guy who was a wretch all his life to his last couple hours of breath comes to repentance and faith in Jesus and he when he dies will be assured of eternal absolution total pardon of all his sin and will be in the resurrection of the just in Jesus' eternal kingdom does it mean to say that absolutely that's what it's saying It's what Paul means. It is utter grace. And to the extent that any of us sinners, we say, that's not fair, is to the extent we do not understand God's 
grace. We do not understand the Gospel of grace. Paul writes, Believer, for by grace have you been saved through your heart of faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one will boast. Or Paul gets just as clear in Romans 4. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as His due. Absolutely. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who, think about this thief on the cross, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is reckoned as righteousness. When Paul will write to Pastor Timothy, Jesus has appeared and He has saved us. I mean, did I say Timothy? I mean Titus. He has saved us, Titus, not because of works done by us in righteousness. No! But He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ and there is no other Gospel. Jesus illustrated this Gospel of grace in Matthew 20 in the parable of the laborers. Do you remember He told the story? A man, he's got a vineyard. He goes to Home Depot at 7 a.m. in the morning and he hires a bunch of workers for the day and he agrees to pay them this full day wage and they agree and they go to work. And then at about 11 a.m., the owner decides to go back to Home Depot and get some more laborers for the day. And he hires them and says, I'm going to pay you a fair wage. Don't work. And they go to work. At about 3 p.m., he decides, I'm going to go get some more workers from my vineyard. And he goes to Home Depot and he grabs these guys who are still hanging around and they go to work. 5 p.m., he goes and gets a few more. 6 p.m., the bell rings. Done for the day. Time for everybody to get paid and to go home. And the ones that were there all day long from 7 a.m., they noticed that these guys only worked an hour, got the full day wage that they were promised. They're getting excited. We're going to really get paid well. But they all got paid the same. And then I pick up in Matthew 20, verse 11, and here's the response of those early workers. And on receiving their pay that was agreed upon, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he, the employer, replied 
to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a certain amount to be paid for the day's work? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And Jesus tags on that slide. So the last will be first. And the first last. Welcome to the true gospel of grace. If God wants to dispense His grace upon a wretched thief in the twelfth hour of his life and not dispense it upon a sweet, nice, little old lady who makes cookies for all the neighbors and has a very sweet disposition, it is His right. No one has a claim on God's grace. We have a claim on what we've earned, absolutely. Don't ever let me work for you as a laborer all day long and say, I'm going to give you a gift at the end of the day. No, you're not. You're going to give me what we agreed upon and I earn. But grace is only a gift. And God owes us only judgment. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 And so God can take this low life thief or He could take a low life man who made it his purpose in life to stamp out this Gospel of Jesus Christ and have some of Jesus' people killed and many others put in prison. He could even take him or the thief and change their hearts. Bring the light. Cause them to see so that their repentance is real and they come to embrace this Savior. The Gospel is free. The Gospel to a do-gooder and the Gospel to a wretched criminal is free. Period. You can only turn to it. Receive it. Welcome it. You can never deserve it or earn it. This guy had no time to show by his works that he deserved anything. And one last thing. 
notice that this guy's faith in Jesus, remember me, it wasn't like this. Jesus, I'll believe in You if You grant my wish for temporal pleasure down here. I got a sick daughter at home. I'm going to be dead. But if you heal her, I'm yours. Jesus, if you get me off the cross, that's the Savior I'll serve. Give me longer life. That was the mockery of the other guy. Not the gospel. Even though it's preached on televisions daily. It's not the gospel. Give me a higher paying job. They come through and give me the wife or the husband that's so longed for. We've been trying to have a baby for ten years. I'll serve you if you finally give us one. My wife and I have a family member who I remember a few years ago, it wasn't shocking to me in the religious culture that they're raised, but I'm just angry with God. He did me wrong. It's amazing how He did not do what I really needed Him to do for me down here. Well, last week I had a conversation with a friend, a man, and I, and I hear it, and there's a lot of pain, and, and he, this is the way he would even talk, not with a definite article, but Father, our Father, God the Father, Father, just, I just don't know. I mean, how could He really love me? And, and, and let me continue in this pain. How could He love me. Now, we understand. We say lots of stuff, just like our kids do, or like we all do when in emotion. I understand it. But here's the point. The content of those type of statements from those two persons are statements that do not understand the Gospel. Can you just picture it? He's hanging here. Jesus, you're Savior, right? Remember me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What? What do you mean today I'll be with you in paradise? If you really love me, why would you leave me on the cross to die? What's this about? Get me off the cross. I love you. That's not the gospel. So I'm going to close with a text of scripture. Just, just hear it. I don't need to interpret it. It's, God is clear through Peter. But whether you're a person who is the thief on the cross and you only have hours to live, or you still have fifty. More years on this earth in service 
to Jesus your Savior, which brings pain. Whichever one it is, know that the Gospel is from the most caring, loving, eternal Creator who has become the Father of all who are being saved in Jesus Christ. He knows what He's doing and there's nothing that can happen in this temporal, painful life that sometimes we want to end now. It can ever happen here that will in any way come in the same universe in matching the glory and the joy and the love that He will bestow in forgiveness and mercy forever in the resurrection. And so listen as I close in reading 1 Peter chapter 1-3 to that says, This is the Christian life. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A hope into what? A hope to an inheritance. It's not yet. It's future. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is reserved in heaven for you. That is for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the second coming of Jesus. That's the Gospel. And so Peter will say next, in this Gospel, you rejoice even though now down here for a little while since it is necessary, you have been crying, grieved by various trials which are there by God's purpose so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Peter understands. He walked with Jesus, so he writes to all of us who never had seen Jesus in the flesh. He says, though you have not seen Him, miracle of all miracles, you love Him, and though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. So let's stand. Let's adore. Let's worship this glorious Savior who hung purposefully on that cross in order to take the punishment for the sins of everybody who will embrace Jesus Christ.